You need tests for your web app, and it has a database. What do you do with the database during testing? Should you use the real thing or mock it? Jeff Triplett says don't mock it. Jeff is a partner at Revsys, a director of the PSF, and president and co-founder of the Django Events Foundation of North America. In this episode, we talk to Jeff about testing web applications, specifically Django apps, and of course talk about the downsides of database mock. This episode is brought to you by Datadog and ConfigCat. ConfigCat is a feature flag service. Easily use flags in your code with ConfigCat libraries. Toggle your feature flags visually on a dashboard. Hide or expose features in your application without redeploying code. Set targeting rules to allow you to control who has access to the new features. It allows you to get features out faster, test in production, and do easy rollbacks. With ConfigCat's simple API and clear documentation, you'll have your initial proof of concept up and running in minutes. Whether you're an individual or a team, you can try it out with their forever free plan or get 25% off any paid plan with the code TEST AND CODE 2021. Release features faster with less risk with ConfigCat. Check them out today at ConfigCat.com. Welcome to Testing Code. Hello and welcome to Testing Code. I am thrilled today to have Jeff Triplett on. Um, I've been following Jeff on online for a long time, but we've never actually spoken, so this will be fun. And we're going to talk about um, uh, Django and other things. So welcome, Jeff. Hi, Brian. It's good to be here. I'm a developer out of Lawrence, Kansas. I work for Revolution Systems, which is a Django consulting, Python consulting agency. Um, I'm a partner there, and I'm on the Python Software Foundation board. So I'm a director uh, voted in by the community, which I appreciate being voted for and not voted for and just appreciate getting to represent people. Um, I've also ran DjangoCon US with a bunch of organizers for the last six years. I started a nonprofit or co-founded a, a nonprofit called DEFNA which is the Django Events Foundation of North America. And then I also run a weekly Django newsletter called Django News with William Vincent, who I think has been on your show maybe before or one of your other shows. Yeah. He's involved with the newsletter with you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weekly publication where we try to just keep people informed of what's going on in the Django world and Python news. And we just try to hit like the high points so that it's Everything is so distributed in Django and Python, it's kind of hard to find one spot to kind of know what's going on with, with both of them. Um, you know, there's good sources for Python, I'm sure. But, you know, trying to get people centered around both Django and some of the web pieces specifically. So it's kind of fun to let people know about, like, new CSS frameworks that's probably worth learning, like Tailwind CSS or um, some of the other, like, JavaScript frameworks and stuff that we like. So it's kind of a nice excuse to, you know, get to do a project with William and then, you know, share community news with, with the community. Cool. And you're, um, I just heard that you're trying to automate some of this. Uh, I'm sure it's uh, maybe fool's errand. I don't know. Fool's goal. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Most of it, like we use, we use a product called curated because we figured we really didn't want to write our own newsletter software. So it'd be really easy just to write like newsletter software and never really write about, you know, what's going on in the community. So instead, we just decided, like, let's use something that's off the shelf, and then we can just focus on in, like, 15 minutes, we can actually be doing the thing that we want to do versus taking time to, you know, write software to, to run it and write it. 
So yeah. I've been trying to like finish some of the automation pieces around like tweeting out links and stuff like that, which I think that probably if I was successful, we probably had two or three of those go out today. So cool. Neat. How did you get into working with Django? I think about 11 years ago or so, I was living in Southwest Missouri and I was kind of looking at where do I want to go career wise? Cause I felt like I wanted to do more Python development or more web and I was interested in startups and kind of side projects and stuff. And then I kind of happened on Ruby on Rails out of Chicago and I'd spent time in Chicago and really liked Chicago. And then I noticed there was a weird blip called Django and that, that blip on the map was in Lawrence, Kansas, which was only about a three hour drive from where I, I lived. And so I noticed it was kind of funny because uh, Matt Croydon and Simon Willison, who were both people I really respected and read their blogs for years, were both like PHP developers and they both had switched over to Python. And so at one point I remember seeing Django and I think I actually emailed Simon Willison to say, hey, have you seen this cool framework called Django? And I had no idea that he was one of the like co-creators of it. And so I don't know if Simon, if he ever listens to this, if he has that email <laughs> still, but I, don't, I can't remember if he replied or not, but I applied for the job to come work at the Lawrence Journal World. Um, I didn't get the job, but they told me, you know, try back in a year or something. We'll probably be hiring again. And I think about like 11 months, 12 months to the day, I got an email from them and said, hey, if you're still interested, since you, you know, you're local. And I, uh, you know, applied and came to work here and worked for the newspaper for probably three years. It's actually one of the newspaper's other companies. It's where they basically forked off the Django people to work on uh, newspaper software. Okay. And so I came to work on what was called Ellington CMS, which was kind of the second, I think, Django app, uh, but it was definitely the biggest for the time. And then three years later, I left to come work with Frank Wiles and uh, Jacob Kaplan Moss, who was another creator of Django. Um, I worked, they invited me to come work at RevSys. And so I've been working with them for the last, I think, 11 years or 10 years, something like that. And um, they asked me to be a partner a couple of years ago. So. Nice. We've been doing Python Django consulting. So even though I do Django, probably half of my year last year was writing Flask code. So I don't <laughs> just do Django code. It's anything and everything in Python. Okay. Okay. So you, you you do a little bit of everything. Were you a developer before Django? I actually was a director of operations for an ISP, but I actually left the company. I was working in ASP and Microsoft World. I left that company to do PHP kind of side work or, or contracting. And then a group were, they were starting an ISP and they invited me to just basically join them because they had servers and they're like, well, it's pretty easy to scale PHP on Linux server. So why don't you come join us? And then part of the time you can help us write software for the business. And the other half, then, you know, you can work on creating a consulting agency or, you know, bringing uh, basically like web applications to the Joplin, Missouri metro area. And so I did that, and three or four months later, they made me director of operations, and then I ended up running an ISP for five years. Hmm. So <laughs> I did like to run, like I, I wrote a lot of PHP code, um, and part of my like hobby at the time, we we ended up like switching over to Django and Python at the time because, you know, I, I was pretty good with PHP, but it's kind of tough to write server scripts and stuff with it. It's much easier to write, you know, Python just works better. I feel like if you're going to run it from a console level, yeah. so we slowly started switching the ISP over to more and more Python and. Django came out, and at the time, it wasn't a great framework. There was a lot of magic, so when Django had the magic removal, that's when it really hit my radar as this is kind of perfect because I don't have to write admin code, which means it's easier for people to you know input data who isn't just me. And so our staff could like work on you know data projects and stuff that we had, and we ended up running like a news portal for Joplin for a while, and so it kind of grew from there. So okay. I like being a developer. I've kind of found myself in management roles over the years, but... You know, I'm kind of happy to do whichever. 
Now, are you still in Kansas? Yeah, I still live in Lawrence, Kansas. Okay. I feel like I'm me and Frank Wiles are here um, of kind of that Lawrence Journal World group. I'm trying to think who else is here. Daniel Lindsley, who wrote Haystack, um, he's he actually moved to Seattle and moved back here. So there's still some Django people from like, you know, that worked in that era still around here. Okay. Is your job now remote? I mean, do you work from home or do you have an office? We do have an office that's probably seven blocks from my house. I think I've been to it three times in the last year. <laughs> so okay. I've had a three-year-old and like with all things with COVID, you know, we mostly work from the home and stuff like that because of it. Okay. I have this thing about testing. I think it's a good thing. And you wrote uh, something on Twitter saying um, something like, uh, by the way, don't ever mock your database or something like that. So I wanted to poke that. I mean, how do you feel about testing with Django and and why the, the need to tell people to not mock the database? So as a consultant, I see a lot of good and misguided. And <laughs> I see a lot, basically. And so I think I stumbled upon a client who was doing a lot of database mocking. And this is a code base that's kind of older. So at the time, you know, 10 years ago-ish, let's say, mocking your database was something that people encouraged because, you know, like Docker wasn't a thing back then or wasn't prevalent. So the ability to spin up like Postgres or MySQL boxes on the fly and connect to them uh, was kind of slow. And so I think because it was a little harder to configure for a while, we started seeing people who were mocking up their databases um, I think now there's just no reason to do it. I think it's more complicated. It's harder uh, for me. Like I think there's, and for one, like I guess I don't want to just say mocking is bad. Like mocking can be really good. And so I guess for me, the lines for mocking is like resource boundaries. Like if you're going to write code that uses Bado um, and you're going to connect to S3, then it's kind of hard to write tests. And if you have a team of developers, you don't really want to distribute test keys and have people writing tests, which write the S3, and then everybody has to have their own buckets and their own credentials. So like using a library called Motto is a really good way to mock up S3 and or Amazon services in general, AWS services. So Motto I think is really good um, because you know you can actually write to it. You can fake where data can go. You can verify that things would have gotten saved to S3 if you have the right credentials. And it's just a really nice library to work with. And I think the other kind of like anything to do with certain types of state, like with uh, time zones, date timestamps, I think you know freezing or mocking dates is, is a really good way to test. Um, I did have a client issue not that long ago where they didn't have data loaded for um, daylight savings time for this year. But they had a lot of tests that looked at like, you know, two, three years ago's daylight savings time and, and trying to like predict that in different dates. And so, you know, testing past dates, present dates and future dates, I think those are really good applications to mock. You know, that way you because you just don't know what's going to happen when you're um, when your tests try to run at like February 28th at midnight to know is there going to be the next day of you know February 29th or not. Yeah, or if some some uh, you know user interaction happens over the boundary of a day, what happens to that? Things like that. Yeah. Exactly. So I think with like you know with databases now, and I, I yeah, I just think it's just a lot of overhead. And what I see is a lot of drift that happens where uh, people will write a layer of mocking and then they'll add new features to their code base, run their tests, and after a while when they mock their databases. 
the mocks no longer reflect the actual code and what's happening on the servers. And so I've seen it where a feature can be like five lines of code, but then they may have to overhaul 50 lines of code to basically make the mocks happy. But when you <laughs> remove the mocks and test against the database, um, these problems don't exist. And so I would avoid that drift. And in general, you know, like if it's a distributed database, like maybe, I don't know if MongoDB would even matter, but like if you consider S3 a remote database or something because of how you're saving objects, um, mock those kind of things for sure. But Postgres and MySQL, you know, there, there's there's ways to speed up the test so that it, you don't have to worry about, you know, performance issues when running them. Okay. But doesn't all of the unit test advice in the world say don't touch the database and don't touch the file system and things like that? I guess I don't really read that much about best practice of database mocking. I don't, <laughs> I mean... I understand like being able to test isolated areas, but to me that's kind of a function call as well. So you know, testing individual pieces, I agree, and I believe in integration testing. Um, and you know, for the most part, like I'm more of a performance testing person. So because being a consultant, people usually call because they're having some major issues. Like, why is their homepage taking five seconds to run? Uh, but other other pages on the website may take a second, and so. You know, what we do is look at that and break that problem down to see why, like real world, this happened once and somebody had what's called like Django middleware, which is like functions that call every time a request is made. And they were hitting the database and pulling up a lookup table that had a quarter million records in it every single time somebody pulled up their homepage. Oh. And so things like that by looking at performance testing and measuring the number of database queries that, you know, happen every time that that homepage view gets hit very quickly revealed that. You know, you, you have this big table and why do you want to load this for every single request? And so those issues are kind of fun to find. And, and, you know, and I do believe in testing. So if clients I've seen that don't test much have hidden performance issues, they just don't know about because they don't have the metrics to see where they're coming from. This episode of Testing Code is brought to you by Datadog. Do you have an application that is performing slower than you like? Do you know why requests have high latency? With Datadog, you can find the root cause fast. Troubleshoot your app's performance with Datadog's end-to-end distributed tracing and continuous code profiling to quickly detect what happened and why, down to the line of code. And in one click, you can correlate individual requests with related logs and infrastructure metrics to get full-stack observability with zero context switching. Start tracking the performance of your apps with a free trial at testandcode.com datadog, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. And to be honest, my Datadog t-shirt is one of my favorites. I wear it all the time. If I don't mock the database, then do I use the live database, or is there some other alternative? I like to use PyTest fixtures. And I'll create fixtures on the fly. Um, fixtures kind of get a bad rap, I think. I think PyTest really uh, reinvents maybe or reinvigorates fixtures. Because like in early Django days, uh, what was common practice or best practice was to use a bunch of JSON files that you would load up. And PyTest fixtures have the right level of granularity that you can say, you know, give me one object or give me a thousand objects and be able to test against it pretty quickly. So that's what that's my go-to is PyTest fixtures. What does that mean? Do I uh, have a test that uses a fixture and that fixture goes out and and uh, 
spins up a small database or something and throws data in it? Or what do you mean? So, I, I mean, I will test with a live database. It'll be a local database. Um, if you, depending upon the size of the test suite, um, we might like, instead of using an on disk cache, we might use an in memory cache. That way, your, you know, your writes are really fast. And so usually the first couple of seconds of any test suite I write, that might be what loads up database fixtures. Some of those get written to the database. Some of those are just on demand. So you can pull up an object. It'll give you everything minus hitting save on the object, the Django, so that you can hit that object and you know run functions against it. So like if you're testing some logic, like maybe a property or something that needs to calculate something that's on the field but doesn't need to hit the database, I'll just use one of those fixtures and not save it because you can do the calculations based on seeing the fields themselves. If I need to save it, I mean, I can do thousands of tests in a minute. So I, I to me, that's kind of the line is, does my test suite take more than a couple of minutes to run? Then let's see what we can do to maybe, you know, isolate some of the tests or look at the fixtures to see, you know, am I loading too much data? Um, that's kind of my my general use case is how do we keep this under a couple of minutes? Okay, that seems reasonable. So you have like maybe a, a session scope fixture that loads some live data locally in a database. And, and maybe if you want to speed it up, you can use a memory da- in-memory database. And then you just have a whole bunch of tests that are using the same database then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Nice. Also, the the performance aspect. It's one of the things that I think uh, I don't really address too much is the performance aspect. Again, because of being a consultant, it's usually the I get brought into a job because somebody has some. You know, some clients have a ton of tests. And one thing I like about PyTest is being able to mark tests based on time and say like slow tests or any tests that take over a second, and then immediately isolating those, and then we kind of know what we need to work on. The other part is, let's say a client only has about, you know, 30, 40% test coverage. And so one thing I like to do is go and write just very loose tests around like all of their views or all of the REST APIs that really just calls, you know, calls the endpoints, even if it doesn't have enough data. And if it records a 500 error or a, a 404 error or whatever, the point is just to like live hit that endpoint to get some kind of response from it. Um, and then do an assertion on what those those response codes are. And then that way we at least have some coverage when you look at coverage reports to know that we're at least touching as many aspects of the code base as we can. And then from there, that's when I put the marks in to say, these are slow tests that take over a second. Sometimes these will be 27 second tests and nobody really understood like, why does this one test take longer? Cause they don't really measure it. And then from there, we come back and start looking at like, why does this take a while? Is it, you know, probably if it's taking 27 seconds, it's trying to access some outside web service or an internal web server, it's timing out and you just can't see it. And then from there, you know, we can start making determinations of, you know, maybe for tests, we should time this out after half a second or a second. And we can start assessing like what's going on here. Another round I like to do too, is just seeing if a client says like, usually what I'll ask them is, what is like the bread and butter of their application? And this could be vegan butter. This can be gluten-free bread, like, you know, pick for your condiments or, you know, <laughs> size of choice. Uh, and basically, you know, what what is the area of your code that's your main business logic? Like what what's getting, what's paying the bills? It's probably not going to be your about page, but there's probably some core functionality. That's why I'm going to go back then and start peppering the, uh, like a certain num queries calls and stuff where we're looking at the actual database calls. And those are the tests that we're going to start with, and we're going to fill in the actual fixtures to make the data look live and then measure what's going on inside it. Yeah, I like that. I like that you brought that up. It's one of the things I try to encourage people to do is prioritizing the parts of your system that make sense. And 
And it's completely valid to say the parts that the reason why people use my software is this thing, that thing needs to work then. So test more around that than around things like, you know, saving to Excel or something like that. Um, exactly. That's where we want like your 80, 90% test coverage. But, yeah. you know, for some of your ancillary content pages, like your blog, maybe, unless your blog is what where you make your money, then, you know, it's probably okay to have, you know, 20% or 40% test coverage there. Like it's just priority wise, it's probably not worth the time and money to like prioritize putting tests there versus, you know, the part that pays your bills or where you accept transactions. Yeah, definitely. Um, and if you have like, for instance, a high transaction area, something that like, um, I don't know, a service that people are using needs to be fairly fast. Um, also, whereas maybe your contact form is okay if it's a little laggy because people are just sitting there waiting for it to show up anyway. So Exactly. So you, you go in as a consultant, so you see a lot of different um, testing styles then probably. Are a lot of people uh, embracing PyTest with Django testing and with other web testing or, or is there a lot of unit tests out there still? So we're kind of in a period where I feel like the people who haven't moved over from Python 2 to Python 3 have kind of got the message like pip doesn't really work anymore. <laughs> like you're not getting new versions of Python 2.7 anymore. So I'm seeing a lot of old unit tests more and more. But thankfully running PyTest to bootstrap those is is not bad. It's a pretty, you know, decent experience. So getting people to PyTest is kind of the first thing I do. 90% of the time I can just install PyTest, make a couple of config like, like configure uh, a PyTest INI file and just run with it. And so I do see about 50% old unit tests, but you know, most of that is just just because of this, I think, wave of people that are decided that you know, how long do we want to run on Python 2 now that it's not being maintained anymore? Okay. So you think people that are starting out on Python 3 are starting with PyTest? Um, I feel like it's got to be a good... I mean, if you care about testing, I feel like that's where a lot of the articles are being written now is about PyTest. So yeah, yeah. That, that's at least my recommendation for sure. Like, I, I, I don't... It, it took me kind of a while to embrace PyTest, maybe because I didn't understand the way the some of the plugin architecture worked. So it was a little weird, like writing a test function and using arguments that I didn't know where those came from. But once I kind of wrap my brain around PyTest fixtures, I, I really like how it works now. Yeah. Do you recommend people like rewrite their unit tests if they, if they already have like an existing set of tests or do you just run those with PyTest? I would run those with, and I think it just kind of depends on where they're at in testing. Like if they already have good test coverage I don't really believe that code gra gathers dust or moss as it gets older. So I, yeah. it probably doesn't, it may not be worth it from a, a business perspective or justifiable for them to rewrite everything. But okay. I think as you write new tests or as you touch old tests, it's especially because of that functional design in um, most PyTests. tests. I, I don't think it's, I think it actually kind of makes things easier. Okay. Um, Lacey Williams Central, who I think you had on uh, a while back, we worked on, we, we work, she works at Repsys too, and we've worked on tests and different APIs and stuff together. And at one point, we decided just to switch everything from kind of that classic unit test style to just a pure PyTest pie style. And she absolutely hated it and kind of cursed my name, I think, for the first <laughs> like couple of days of it. But then after some time, we look back and go, you know, actually, that wasn't too bad. And so those tests kind of saved me a couple months ago when I couldn't figure something out and I was trying to wrap my head. I don't even remember what the problem was, but I couldn't wrap my head around either auth or some piece of it. And I went back and looked at those tests and sure enough, like Lacey had figured it out and that was yeah. like a huge time, you know, time save for us. So cool. 
when testing with Django, I know that Django has, and PyTest has this way where you can run, you kind of don't, you don't have to run through the, the, the web interface then. You don't have to run Selenium or something. I can run, um, I can hook right into the Django guts and run locally, right? I don't know how that works, but. Yes, you can. I, I don't really know how it works either. It's just kind of a request object. And the, the Django developers, I guess, figured out some mechanics so that it looks like the test server is running. But yeah, it's and what's kind of weird, too, is I, I don't know when I got to this point, but I used to always start with the front end and everything I did was kind of like manually testing stuff at first just to fill out my applications. And a couple of years ago, I think maybe I'm to the point now where a lot of times I work on client code and I never actually run. I never run run server to see the thing work. It's just I'm getting responses from the APIs and I'm not designing forms and I'm not doing the JavaScript side. It's just purely from a REST standpoint. And so I write tests that I know these things are going to work because I'm making all the calls as if I'm in the browser. So that first time I probably went three months and never actually looked at the application. It was just kind of a weird feeling of like, you know, me five years ago never thought that was possible. And okay. so and it's not that I'm awesome. It's just, you know. If you do enough testing and, you know, once you get in the hang of it, you don't really you don't really need to go back and manually test as much. You still should like these are healthy things to do. But, you know, from REST APIs and stuff, it's it's a kind of a solved problem, I guess. Right. I guess um, for REST APIs, definitely for um, is that and is that where your time is often spent or are you s- testing things that have like have web pages to look at? I'd say it's probably 90% or more Django Rust framework or Flask or probably fast API more and more. Um, it, it's been an interesting trend the last like four or five years. I feel like those server side rendering is really making a strong comeback. So I expect the next year, maybe, you know, whether it's 2021 or 2022, I can already see where more clients and more people are starting to get interested and in maybe pushing back on having to know, you know, having to have full time JavaScript devs to do front end work and maybe iOS devs to do iOS apps and, you know, Android devs to do Android, you know, anything that's on your mobile phone is always going to need specific tailored developers to make good applications. But with some of the newer technology where they're starting to do, um, and I forget, like I think 37 signals or Basecamp, they have a framework now where it does, it encourages server side HTML rendering. I I think that's going to, you know, I feel like this is a cycle of every seven to 10 years, (laughs) like, do everything in JavaScript, now do everything on the server side. And I think we're in that cycle where it's looking like there's going to be more server-side rendering, I feel like. Okay. So you, um, so do you see any any uh, any of the test suites you run across or run across have um, like uh, Selenium components or uh, to, to test the front end? I, I don't work with it as much, but yeah. Um, I had a client a while back that used Robot Framework. And, you know, it fires up Selenium, I think, or Google Chrome and does a bunch of manual automated tests. It reminded me, like when I saw this test suite run, it reminded me of Fantasia where the little buckets have the water and they're all walking, <laughs> like just seeing everything dance around your browser and everything. Yeah. But you can switch that to like a headless mode and stuff too and get good tests from it. So it, it was pretty in- impressive. I don't tend to write those types of applications, but if things switch to be more server side, then whatever that is for PyTest is what I'm going to look into and do more of that DOM style testing for, you know, seeing what the browser sees and filling in data. Okay, cool. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad that you can test web stuff without having to do the Selenium style. That just doesn't look like fun to me, but maybe that's just me. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I think testing is necessarily fun, but 
I like that feeling when you hit deploy with a reasonable amount of confidence that you can go get coffee or have a weekend, you know? So, so while I don't yeah. love testing, I, I love the, the freedom and security maybe from a good test suite that lets me know something is going to break or not break, at least the obvious problems, you know? Yeah. I'm thinking about databases again. The local databases that you run, are they pulled from the live data or do you have a, like a, uh, some dummy data that you fill in? Um, 90% of the time, it's dummy data. Um, I have had clients before that will have some pretty sizable use cases. Usually the more Selenium-type driven tests, those tend to rely, I've noticed, on more like where they'll copy client data to a staging server, or they did at one point in time, and then they tend to maintain those. So I probably every 10 clients I have that are just generated data, there'll be one that has a really complex, because like one of them was kind of, they dealt with a lot of encryption and a lot of like serial number type encoding stuff that was kind of harder to fake and have reasonable data. So I think what they did is they had a pretty good system around if they found irregularities and bugs, they could freeze that data and they would copy that down to their staging servers. And that's what we would run tests off of, too. Oh, and then cool. that way, you know, after they kind of anonymized it and stuff so that everything was secure. But but, yeah, they were using kind of real world data to generate their fake data and then keeping that data set up. OK, for for generating fake data, there's a bunch of tools available. Do you have a favorite that you use? Or? Yeah, Model Bakery is my favorite. It's got a pretty nice API and does a pretty good job of generating fake data along with, you know, filling out the objects in a nice way. Cool. Um, I'll have to check that out. So does it does it work with Django models then? Or what's yeah, that the, was... the model part come from? Yeah, it's it's for Django models essentially. Okay. Um, you know, it uses was it called Faker, and so Faker you can use on anything. Like Faker, I, I assume works with SQL Alchemy, but Faker is just you know create a bunch of random first names, last names, addresses, whatever, and so they have integration with Faker with it. Okay, nice. So you don't have to do that yourself. You can what give it a, a what a model template or something, and it'll. Yeah, you can either just give it a model, like pass a Django model into it or the string representation of the app and the model name, and then it will generate as many data, you know, fake objects as you want. Oh, cool. Yeah, that, that seems like it'd be very helpful. Nice. Well, um, I think this was a fun discussion, so thanks so much for joining me today, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to talk tests every once in a while. <laughs> and if people want to find you on the web, where do they find you? Um, I'm pretty vocal on Twitter at Webology, so you can either find me there. My website is jefftriplet.com, which most people can't spell, but that's fine. Thanks a lot, and um, we'll catch you later. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Jeff. Lots of great information. Thank you also to Patreon supporters. Join them at testandcode.com support. Thank you, ConfigCat, for sponsoring. Release features faster with less risk with ConfigCat. Check them out at configgat.com. Try them for free or use code testing code 2021 for 25% off. Thank you, Datadog, for sponsoring. Modern end-to-end monitoring and security. See inside any stack, any app, at any scale, anywhere. Get started with a free trial at testingcode.com slash Datadog, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Those links are in the show notes at testingcode.com slash 154. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. <laughs>